Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, I know we get in some topics on this show that are out of the comfort zone, but today is one that is way out of the comfort zone because we're going to talk about grief. I bet you never thought that grief was relevant to you as a leader. I'm going to tell you you're dead wrong because grief is something that all of us deal with, whether it's the expected or the unexpected loss of a loved one, whether we're in a pandemic or not in a pandemic, but it could also be the loss of a job or the loss of a significant relationship. And sometimes it's the loss that comes with just getting out of your comfort zone and doing things that you're not particularly skilled at or know how to do. There's a loss that comes with that. Now, according to my guest today, by his account, 5% of the workforce is experiencing grief at any one time. If you want to think about that, that's one in 20 employees, somebody's experiencing grief. So the question is, do you know how to recognize that? And do you know what to do if you've got an employee that's grieving? Or what if if it's your own life? How well prepared are you for the grief that's coming in your own life? That's what we're going to talk about today. My guest is Guy Casablanca. Together with his brother, Anthony, they're co-founders of Grief Leaders, which is a training and consulting organization devoted to educating leaders on how to help grieving employees excel at work. Now, Guy is a dually licensed funeral director and mortician. We are not going to talk about the mortician part of that, though, however, in this particular show. So he is clearly highly experienced in facilitating healthy grieving processes. He's owned multiple businesses, consulted for lots of corporations, and led teams of managers. And he currently manages a funeral home in Loveland, Colorado. He's um, And his brother, Anthony, is a senior executive with 30 years experience in purpose-driven leadership. And their book that we're highly supporting, actually, I really enjoy this book, is called The Dying Art of Leadership. How Leaders Can Help Grieving Employees Excel at Work. And you can also learn a lot more about their work at griefleaders.com. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. I am so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this all week. (laughs) I've been looking forward to it too. And I can't believe I was expecting to talk to a funeral director and um, have this as an exciting conversation. Actually, the reason I think it's so important is we underestimate the impact of grief, I think, and we underestimate our need to care for the whole human being at work, something we talk about this show as a whole long time. But before I get into the topic, I have to ask why. Why do you care about helping leaders deal with grief? What got you started on this journey? Uh, You know, um, it is part of my inherent nature as a funeral director to be a natural caretaker. That's just kind of what we do. Right. Right. Um, In the course of in the course of a year at at work, I may get the opportunity to help about, um, oh, somewhere along the lines of of 700 to 1000 people who are experiencing loss either directly or in a secondary or tertiary form as you know, the immediate family expands out to the extended family and so on and so forth. 
So I'll counsel a fair amount of people throughout the course of a year. But my brother and I, when we recognized the impact that grief was having on other areas of our society, like work and work performance, we wanted to take it to the next level. And we thought, how can we expand upon what we do and what we know and help tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? What if we can help millions of people? How would we go about that? And that's kind of where Grief Leaders was born from, was, you know, we need to replicate our efforts in the people who are on the front lines of dealing with uh, emotionally traumatized people in the workplace. And that's where we thought it was most under-addressed. And that's why we began to uh, tackle this topic. So I know we're going to talk first about grief as in loss and death, but it strikes me in this moment of pandemic that there's also a lot of grief around lost opportunities, lost interactions, lost, I mean, a whole, there's a lot, I think people are experiencing a lot of loss at the moment. Are you seeing and hearing that as well? Oh, it's a pandemic within a pandemic, to be honest with you. Um, let's, let's just, I'll, I'll give you a couple of obvious scenarios. On top of the roughly 2.8 million deaths that are happening in the United States on a yearly basis, there are 2.4 million divorces. There are 1.7 million cancer diagnoses a year. There are 10.3 million opioid addictions a year. So when you start to put these numbers together, and I'm just adding up loss of a loved one, cancer diagnoses, opioid epidemic and divorces. If we just look at those four scenarios, you're talking about 17.2 million emotionally traumatized people in the country per year. If we assume that only one person in each of those scenarios is affected by grief, that's where we get that number of about one in, in uh, um, uh, 20 showing up to work in an emotionally traumatized state. If we really begin to wrap around, wrap our heads around the exponential number of people that are affected by those events, we're probably talking about more like nine in a hundred. So we jump suddenly from about 5% of the workforce to 9% of the workforce who is showing up under some state of emotional duress on a daily basis. And that doesn't count the people who thought they'd found the right relationship and this was going to be their forever partner. They're not even looking at divorce yet, but that loss has happened. There's, there's just so many losses that are not even related to work, let alone the loss of, I went really hard for that job opportunity or that promotion and I didn't get it. That's the one I see so much. And then just dealing, there's a lot of trauma that's happening day in and day out for people. Yes, there is. Just just the very nature of the lockdown itself and, and people being uh, working remotely from home comes with a fair amount of inherent stress. That and, and, and let's be honest, stress is, is it's a form of grief, right? It may not be as as deeply seated as the loss of a loved one, but there are definitely overlapping factors that apply directly to the grief model. Okay. All right. So just to repeat for everybody, one in 20 of your employees, 
So if you've got a team of 100, five of them are likely first person experiencing an emotionally traumatic event. More realistically, when we broaden out friends of, family of, and broader kind of events, it's at least one in 10, if not more than that. So now, why should I care as a leader? What happens to people that are experiencing this grief? Well, there's a lot to care about. And it it starts with the $75 billion a year that are lost in productivity due to bereavement circumstances or grief-related circumstances at work. And and that number comes actually from the Grief Recovery Institute in a study that they did in 2003. So that information is 17 years old, but it's the most recent thorough study that was conducted on this topic. And if we extrapolate that into today's terms, we're probably talking well over $100 billion, $125 billion. That, that number may have doubled to $150 billion by today's standards, especially given everything that we're dealing with in the COVID world, right? So that's, that's number one, is, is just the bottom line impact that overlooking your workforce's mental health is having on the United States. Furthermore, those, that kind of resonates out into things like, um, well, corporate culture <laughs> and morale and engagement at work, uh, employee retention, um, liability issues. Uh, nearly 90% of people who are experiencing grief reported an increase in their physical injury rate while coming back to work in a state of emotional duress because your concentration is just not what it was prior to that event happening. So there are a lot of factors beyond just the bottom line that will have a direct impact on your organization if this goes unaddressed. I certainly, I mean, you said employee retention. I certainly hear this when an employee has gone through an emotionally traumatic event and they feel like they have been handled well by their company and by their manager, their loyalty factor goes way up. Now, it's not a, you know, for the next 20 years, but hey, if that buys you an extra three to five years in today's market, that says that's a good thing for me. And there's a lot of good word of mouth that comes with it too. But I love this. 90% of the people who are experiencing grief report that there's an increase in injury rate. Obviously, some of those minor, but the potential for that is, you know, mistakes and customer impact as well as physical impact. Right. Absolutely. So you're talking about increased workers' comp claims. You are talking about the likelihood of someone needing to be hospitalized for a long duration or be out of work for a long time. Not to mention just the... the, the Let's think about just the smaller liabilities that kind of come in on under the radar. Um, email communications with a very important client, and you just you just hit send and realized I had such an abysmal miswording or typographical error in there. This could outright cost me this account to try and rectify this, right? Uh, so corporate communications are, are another big one. Um, certainly people who, who are working in an industrial environment, operate heavy equipment. Yeah, those liabilities are very obvious. But just in your day-to-day dealings with your clientele, um, your direct reports, your superiors, um, 
there are a lot of different areas where inhibited concentration can come back to have traumatic consequences. Okay. I can see that. A manager that's on edge and deals roughly, too roughly with an employee and there are consequences that knock on from that one. Increased cost of investigation. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff that can go wrong on that one. Okay. So I should care because it's impacting my business, my ability to do business, my cost of doing business, my liability rate, my retention rate, my engagement rate, morale, a lot of stuff. I should care. And there are a lot of people in my organization probably experiencing some form of grief. All right. So let's go backwards. For people that are in one of these emotionally traumatic events, and again, we're talking about death or divorce or cancer, one of the big ones, what is happening to them? Like you said, their concentration is gone, and so the injury rate is up. But what else is happening for them? Yeah, there's so there's a lot of talk these days about the relevancy of the traditional Kubler-Ross model of the uh, the stages of grief, and although they are oftentimes misinterpreted as being a very linear process, which they are certainly not, um, I do see time and time and time again how these stages play out in one form or another. Albeit, grief is not a path that we walk but rather an ocean that we are kind of tossed around in, right? So the way these kind of play themselves out of work, and I'll just make some quick references to the things that are, are very easily recognizable to, to most people. Um, the, the stage of denial, the stage of shock that first accompanies a state of grief. Oftentimes you will see employees who are A, confused, about what they're doing at work, unable to concentrate. But there also may be a certain amount of avoidance mm-hmm. at work, avoiding those really difficult tasks, avoiding those things that require excessive concentration, organization, uh, attention to detail. They may try and sidestep some of those things. And perhaps it's within the best interest of the company because they don't want to drop the ball on those things. And they know that they are in an impaired state of concentration right now. But that's that's one of the ways that I see it play out quite frequently is in avoidance and, and outright, sometimes numbness, if you will, Wanda, um, where people just are not able to process the multitude of tasks that are coming at them on a daily basis. And when when they move between these stages, so when they move into a state or have moments of anger, which is a very natural reaction to grief, we may very well see that play out in the workplace as irritation. Um, Someone who is typically a very agreeable person, or maybe they were all on board for an idea that you presented yesterday, suddenly today want nothing to do with it, don't want to talk about it, disagree with it. It is just a natural way that we manifest our anger is through irritation and disagreeability. Um, depression. Depression is definitely one that everybody recognizes. It is easy when you are depressed, even moderately, to become very overwhelmed very quickly at work. So tasks that normally you could rely on one of your associates to carry through may prove just to be too cumbersome, too overbearing for them in this particular moment. Uh, Leads to 
a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm at work, and, and an utter sense of helplessness. Everybody wants to have their, their strongest game face on at work. And sometimes it's very hard to admit that we're depressed or that we need help in dealing with our day-to-day routine, right? So those, those are some of the other ways in which I see these things play out in the workplace that affect not only, not only the immediate results that are happening at work and the productivity, but the overall culture of the environment at work because the entire team is watching how is the company dealing with this? Right. How are they reacting? What are they doing about it? That speaks volumes in one direction or the other for your organization. Right, right. Yeah, because it says, how am I going to be dealt with if something happens for me? How much do we really care about people? So much for people are our number one asset. All of that stuff starts to get called into question. And that cultural program, change program you were just doing, aha, we see where that's going. Um, I'm sure you've heard this story a thousand times, but I'm just going to relate from my personal experience. My father died quite a few years ago, so it's like, you know, 30 some years ago now. I remember at his death, the shock, I couldn't remember the name of immediate family members. Like just, you know, somebody I've known, I would normally could remember that not an issue at all. Somebody I know and care deeply about, I couldn't tell you what their name was. I'm not even sure I could have told you what day of the week it was either for that matter. And until you've experienced that, I think it's hard to understand just how much of an impact that can have on you. And you're at work now trying to concentrate. Absolutely. I I see it all the time, Wanda, especially in the tragic circumstances of, uh, say, when a parent loses a child. Mm -hmm. A parent who has just lost a child, you cannot rely on them for one iota of accurate information. They, They will get their address wrong. They will get their phone number wrong. These are imperative things that have to go on to a death certificate as I'm registering that loss with the county. And that information has to be spot on or that death certificate is null and void. And even though they reviewed that document two or three times and signed off on it as being accurate before I file it with the county, it comes back. And a few days, weeks later, they look at it and it is riddled with errors that that they laid their eyes on, but they were blinded by grief when their eyes hit that page. Mm -hmm. See it all the time. Okay. All right. So imagine that person now at work. Even if we've given them a couple of days <laughs> to get past that, and we've said all the obvious things take all the time you need, but the pressure to feel like I'm coming back and I'm contributing and so on, and you want an escape. You don't want to sit around the house moping around all the time, but there's real consequences for it. I got, I see it. You know, what's interesting about this is I would never have stopped to think about how prevalent this was and how big of an impact it is and how much we need to do about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm with you on that one. Thank you. Okay. So you talked about the five stages, the Kubler-Ross five stages. I'm sure most people have heard the model somewhere along the lines, but just for the record, what are those again? I think you hit a couple of them. Yeah. If I were to, if I were to kind of walk through them in the way that they are typically experienced, uh, it, it usually begins with a certain amount of denial. Um, it's also you could call it shock, you could call it um, disbelief, but denial is typically the first stage of that, uh, of that grief model, followed by anger. 
Um, we then typically move into some state of bargaining, which is then usually accompanied by a state of depression. And somewhere down the line, there will eventually be a state of acceptance. Those are the most common five stages of grief that everyone tends to be familiar with. There, there is kind of an unofficial sixth stage, if you will, um, what I like to refer to as a sixth stage anyway, and that is sharing what you have learned with others. That is when you really know that acceptance has, has been reached, and although you may revert from time to time back into states of depression and back into states of bargaining, when you begin to share what you've learned with other people, that's, that's a, that is the beginning of a healthy place to be in. It means that you are utilizing the grief that you had internalized for so long, and you're now beginning to use it as a learning experience for other people, to help other people. Right. And that is part of what my brother and I have the the state that we have reached in our lives, because we we have dealt with a fair amount of personal loss through our years. Uh, He he and I are the only two immediate surviving members of our family. We are at the top of our family tree. So we have walked this path. We have been down this road before. And the Dying Art of Leadership and Grief Leaders Project is an extension of our sixth stage of grief in wanting to help others with what we have learned through this process. It's um, something we've talked about a couple of times, and I've certainly seen many, many times in my clients that when you have a significant event, usually a significant negative event, and you can begin to integrate it into your life story, that's when you can start to talk about it. You can start to help other people understand what the lessons they can take out of it. And that's where it becomes no longer as traumatizing. And I think that's what you're saying here. The same kind of idea, the sixth, I can share what I've learned. I can talk about the story. Okay. For those who've never experienced this denial and shock, what does that look like around loss? Well, what are people saying? Well, um, it may, it may manifest itself one in what they're not saying. Um, there's a certain amount of fear about (laughs) life in general. There's, there is a sense of numbness, Mm -hmm. um, confusion, avoidance. Some of the things we talked about playing out at work, uh, there may be a sense of blame, whether they are blaming themselves, blaming God, blaming the situation. All of those things tend to be wrapped up in that state of denial, um, and I, I see this play out. You, you know, I know not all losses are the same. Some are more impactful than others. Some a little more, we're a little more distanced from than others. But in some regards, a loss is a loss is a loss. And when I am in in, in my abundance of spare time, when I am uh, coaching youth hockey, which I I like to do to to relieve stress, when I see my little guys lose a big game, I see immediately denial come right to the surface before they're even off the ice. I can't believe we lost. This can't be happening. Right. Right. So that's, that's one of the quickest reactions that is just part of our human nature is to immediately block some of these things out and and deny their existence altogether. We're constantly fantasizing about a way to recover it. 
like in the case of a divorce or a lost relationship or a lost opportunity at work. And you see the blame as well. Well, they were biased in their selection or whole sorts of other things. All right, anger we can kind of get. You know, that's going to get the explosion, the hostility, the disagreeableness. What does this bargaining look like? Bargaining is a really interesting phase. And I'm glad that you brought it up because I think it's one of the most undervalued and overlooked. Um, Bargaining can manifest itself in, in a couple of ways. We, we typically see it in um, trying, to, trying to rationalize the situation, okay. maybe even trying to cut a deal with God, if you will. God, if I, if, if, if I could just have them back for one more day, I would have whatever. Um, they, it's people struggling to find meaning to mm-hmm. what happened, Right. Man, maybe I should have uh, maybe I should have listened to him when he first started complaining about stomach pain. Maybe if I'd have gotten him to the doctor sooner. Maybe if I had called that person more often, this wouldn't have happened. There is some bargaining can be a far stretch of the imagination to try and negotiate their way out of these feelings. But there is a certain amount of self-discovery that happens in the bargaining phase that can actually be quite valuable. Yeah, maybe you should have been a little more aggressive with medical treatment. Maybe that would, you know, that's a valuable lesson to learn. Maybe you should have been a better friend and reached out a little more often right? To make that connection with them so that they didn't feel so alone. Now, these are certainly never, ever, ever things that we as leaders would propose to someone who is in a state of bargaining. You would never, ever say to someone, yeah, maybe you should have. (laughs) Not a good thing, right? Right. But through the course of bargaining, there is a period of self-discovery where you can learn a a lot about how to better yourself through this experience, right? Right. So I, I think it is, it's something that is rarely talked about and kind of swept under the rug. Um, most people are quick to, to shun the bargaining stage by saying, ah, you can't think like that. Ah, you can't think like that. You can't, hindsight is twenty twenty. Ah, you can't say that to yourself. Well, no, there are probably some valuable statements in there if you really, really want to take them to heart. But bargaining is a good sign that someone is processing this in a way to make sense of it and they're on their way to a healthy recovery. Right. Yes. Okay. So it's not, uh, I mean, there's not much I can do other than listen to that. Correct. Correct. Listening is, is um, probably one of the biggest assets that a leader can have throughout this process is being an, an intent, deliberate and compassionate listener. And sometimes that's hard because as leaders, we're looking for solutions, right? We want to fix things. And sometimes the best thing that you can do for uh, the betterment of a situation is just listen. Mm -hmm. Very hard to do. Very, very hard to do. All right. Depression and acceptance. We've already talked about in sharing. We've talked about what's the general time frame for getting through this? Like, what should I expect to my employees or, you know, is this a two week? Is this a two year? Um, that's a tough question to answer because it, it really is based on the individual. 
Uh, I know for myself, when I lost my father at a, a relatively young age of, of 18, um, it was decades, to be honest with you, Wanda. I, I looked back at my life when I was 30 years old and realized I really had not made much growth emo- emotionally, professionally, mentally. I was stunted at the age of 18. And it took the better part of 10 years for me to come to the realization that I hadn't dealt with this as well as I thought I had. And I had to do a lot of um, reanalyzing of, of what I had made of this situation. So that, that's kind of a worst case scenario, I guess you could say. And it, and it wasn't 10 tumultuous years of constant depression. Uh, it was a lot of capitulating back and forth between various stages of grief stages that I did not even realize that I was in at the time, but looking back at it, they became very easy to recognize. So I would say um, in a very general sense, and I am, I am sweeping a very broad brush here, uh, but usually over the course of a couple of months, six to nine months, people have worked through a lot of the heaviest parts of their loss. Okay. They may still, they may still fall back into states of depression. They may still swing into states of bargaining from time to time. They will gradually get less and less frequent until a state of acceptance and sharing is reached. What I find though, Wanda is, um, the first set of significant dates Mm -hmm. that people roll upon. For example, my families who lost their loved ones in April and May of this year, um, they're reliving their grief all over again right now as they come into Thanksgiving and Christmas without that person, Mm -hmm. right? It's the first set of holidays without dad. It's the first Christmas without grandma. And those dates of significance will bring back a, 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 an undercurrent of emotion that had otherwise been gotten over, right? And there are many dates of significance that will cause someone to revert into other stages of grief. And they, it, it, it may just be an average Tuesday to you or I, but it's somebody else's birthday or, or anniversary right. or work anniversary. Right. This was this was the day last year that I got the job that I lost two weeks ago. Right. right. So um, there are there are a lot of subtle factors that pop up throughout the course of the grief process that will elongate it a little bit. Right. Yeah. So by and large, though, after that first year, people have seen all the scenarios unfold that are going to cause them to have little reversions. And from that point forward, it just, it it seems to get better and better and better. Those first nine to 12 months though, those are the ones that are going to be critical. The, the really, um, as far as leadership is concerned in the workplace, I would say the most critical time is going to be those first maybe 90 days when they've come back to work because just just the process of planning and getting through a funeral itself is enormously stressful. Most people are not even going to begin to engage the grieving process until that part of it is over. And now they're back to work. 
their bereavement leave is over. They got to get back to work. And that's when everything catches up with them. And the grief process really starts when they're back at their desk. Great. Okay. So that begs the question then, here I am as a manager. I have somebody that's just taken, let's say, a week off to go and travel, deal with a funeral, whatever arrangements you have for your own local traditions, whatever that looks like. Um, get through all of those rituals, the extended family. I know with my father, I found the extended number of people trying to press in on me its own trauma <laughs> in and of itself yeah. with, with uh, just the other arrangements that went along. I'm back at my work. So what do I need to be like? Do we need to give people another week at work? Do we just need to be vigilant about how they might be feeling? What do we need to be thinking about as a manager in that first week back at work? Well, as a little bit of a preemptive study on this, um, I think I think corporate America in general needs to rethink its bereavement policies. That's a whole nother conversation. But that that right there in and of itself would help. So given the nature of what we currently have to deal with in corporate culture, the first thing a leader needs to do is engage. Engage that employee and engage their grief on a personal level. And that's that's difficult to do. Right. That that means having the courage as a leader to have those awkward, emotional, uncomfortable conversations with someone who is returning to work in a state of emotional duress. Listen with compassion and concern. Be willing to act in order to support that employee's emotional well-being. And adjust your leadership style. Adjust the things that you would normally, um, the actions that you would normally take with that associate may need to be adjusted. They may generally have a very high level of independence Mm -hmm. at work and you can hold them accountable for a lot of things without having to follow up on it too much. And maybe you can still count on them for those things, but they need more follow up. There are other people who, who in a state of grief, and you may have seen this yourself, they become Mm hyper-focused because it's a way for them to not be occupied in their own mental headspace, dealing with their own grief. It's almost, it borders a a, a coping mechanism of denial is to become hyper-focused on work. So maybe that person doesn't need this, their stewardship is in line. Maybe they don't need quite as much um, uh, oversight, but you may have to go back and double check everything that they're doing in that focused state because what might look like focus could be a sense of numbness and they're just blankly staring at a screen when you think that they are concentrating. The only way we will know this is to act with courage, be proactive and engage that person. I can't tell you how many grieving people I have dealt with who had told me my coworkers are walking away from me at work because nobody knows what to say to me. Mm-hmm. They're afraid to have those difficult conversations. And I, I, I don't blame them. I understand people at work, your coworkers, your colleagues, and, and probably a vast majority of your leadership has not been trained on how to deal with this. So I get it. I understand why they're walking away, but that just further isolates and traumatizes the person who's already in an emotional state. 
All right, guy, this is a perfect place to take a break because when we come back, I want to say, so what do I say? (laughs) Which is the next obvious question that I need help on as well. All right, my guest for today is Guy Casablanca. The book that we've been talking about is The Dying Art of Leadership, How Leaders Can Help Grieving Employees Excel at Work. I just want to repeat a couple of things that Guy has said. At best case scenario, just looking at death, cancer, opioid addiction, and divorce, one in 20 of your employees is personally experiencing an emotionally traumatic event at work every day. And more likely, it's probably one in 10 or even more if you start to look at other kinds of traumatic events. And the notion here is that you can't just say, oh, forget it and move on. We've got to do some other things, as Guy has just said, like engage courageously. So when we come back, we're going to ask how. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Guy Casablanca. He's the co-founder of Grief Leaders. He's also a licensed funeral director and mortician. That means that he deals with grief, very personal grief, a lot in the course of any given week and any given month. I suspect that Guy's dealt with more people in grief than any of the rest of us will ever see in our lifetimes. He's also the co-author of The Dying Art of Leadership, How Leaders Can Help Grieving Employees Excel at Work. And their website is griefleaders.com. Again, highly recommended book. I think it's got a lot of great insight. Now, we were just talking about the Kubler-Ross stages of grief and the fact that those are general terms. They have different tones and flavors for different people, and you may pick up any number of other books that will describe them slightly different words, but the phases are sort of roughly the same. Some sense of denial, some sense of anger, some sense of bargaining, some sense of acceptance, some sense of 
Um, the last one we talked about is being able to share what you've learned. I think I missed one in there, but we got the general sense of what that one's all about. And that people will act that out in very different ways. And that as a manager, I should expect that after the bereavement period is over and people are back at work, that it's still going to be three months where I just need to be close. And we've been talking about the importance of engaging people courageously. Now, we've also done this all in terms of somebody's death. But if it's a divorce, for example, particularly a very messy divorce, often managers don't even know about that. And there is no week or two weeks off to get your head together and kind of help you get over or get into whatever that thing is going to mean, that grief is going to mean for you. So, Guy, I left everybody hanging at the break. With the, all right, I'm there as a manager, as a team member. I need to say something. What do I say? Well, it is imperative to be completely honest and um, not over embellish, right? People in a state of grief can detect the thin clank of a counterfeit very easily. So I advise people to use very honest sentiments. I was shocked to hear. I was totally surprised. Tell me what happened. Tell me what happened is one of those things that people are reticent to say uh, because they, they, they think that the grieving person doesn't want to talk about it, especially at work. And we've kind of been trained to think that way, that these are not conversations that you're supposed to have at work. It will behoove you as a leader to just ask them, tell me, tell me what happened. Um, Another, another key expression is, I can't imagine what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I think I can't imagine what you're going through relates to a grieving person because it acknowledges the fact that you acknowledge their loss, but cannot even begin to wrap your head around what they are dealing with. That is an honest sentiment. In stark comparison to something like, hey, if there's anything I can do, those vague condolences, uh, is there anything that I can do? Those, those, nobody is ever going to come to you and say, yeah, will you do me a favor and go to my house and do the dishes, tend to the laundry, feed my kids, make the bed, all the stuff that I'm not getting to right now because I am depressed and in a state of grief. Nobody's going to take you up on that offer of, is there anything that I can do? Much better to say, I can't imagine what you are going through. Tell me what happened, right? So that's that's a good starting point. Another, another pretty safe... Um, uh, territory to to venture off into are um, terms of legacy. I'll always remember Jim for this. I'll never forget when he told me or she said or when they did anything that refers to terms of legacy is generally very well accepted because we all want to be remembered in life, right? You can look around a cemetery and see thousands and thousands of people who wanted to be remembered and their headstones are there to commemorate their life well lived. Terms of legacy are generally very well received. Um, If you're going to make the offer, make a very specific offer to help, 
Rather than saying, hey, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Put a specific task on the end of that. Hey, do you need, do you need help with that project that you're working on? Because I'm, you know, I've got a little free time and space. I can jump in. I can pick up the slack for you. Uh, um, do you need, uh, do, do you need a list of like carry out places in town so that you can get food sent over to the house so that you don't have to cook so frequently? I know that's probably the last thing you want to do right now. What, oh man, what about the kids? Do, do you need a list of like childcare or anything? How can I help? You know, those kind of direct statements with a, with a specific purpose linked to the end of them, those are generally very well received. Nobody may take you up on them, but at least you, you came forward with a very deliberate purpose rather than this open-ended statement of, hey, let me know if there's anything, anything that I can do, right? So that's a pretty good starting point. The other, uh, the other turn of phrase that I like to use a lot, Wanda, and I felt has, has really worked wonders for me is um, I wish I had magic words that could just take this all away for you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That resonates with people, but you got to follow it up with, I don't, and yeah. I can't, right? I don't have those magic words, but just know that I'm here to help you through this in any way that I possibly can. So let's talk about the things that are overbearing right now or, or just overwhelming you here at the office so that I can take those off your plate. And as a leader, then you should engage your entire team in that process. Hmm. This builds morale. This builds a strong corporate, corporate culture. And it sends a message to the entire organization that when your chips are down, We've all got your back. Mm -hmm. We are all going to pull together to make sure that you don't go through this alone. And that speaks volumes. It does. And especially if you're espousing teamwork or collaboration or respect or trust and integrity, you just exhibited it in that moment by saying the team is engaged in figuring out how to take away the stuff that you're overwhelmed by. Okay. Yes. All right. I like that. So tell me what happened. I didn't realize that people actually do want to talk about it. But as I think about it, that makes perfect sense. They do. Yes, they do. Uh, there, there is a natural proclivity for us to want to emote about these things. It is just that we have been trained by, uh, I'll say modern corporate culture, but maybe it's a little bit of outdated corporate culture that has trained us to bottle these things up and not bring these personal issues to work. Um, I'm hopeful that that is changing. It is very much our intention at Grief Leaders to help initiate that change and to instigate these conversations so that people feel safe at work. They feel okay coming into work in a less than optimal condition because they're not going to be shunned. They're not going to be walked away from they're not going to be their 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 plight is not going to be ignored in lieu of shareholders stakeholders in the bottom line right right so as we've said many times on the show there's not much you can do and be effective as a leader without having people believe that you care about them as a whole human being and that's what you're saying i don't just care about your output i care about you as a human being and that's the story absolutely okay? All right. So I'm shocked. Tell me what happened. I can't imagine what you're going through. 
Um, I will always remember this person for, or always appreciated something this person did. Um, an offer of a specific, let me help you with this project, concrete specific, not a generic one. And I wish I had magic words to take this away, but I don't. Okay. And you said already, don't do the classic, um, you know, tell me if there's anything I can do. Is there anything else we should not say? Yes. Uh, There are two words that you should probably just remove from your vocabulary altogether when dealing with someone who has been faced with any kind of loss, divorce, death, whatever the case may be. And those two words are at least. At least you still have your kids. At least you still have a great job. At least you still have a good set of friends. And although those statements are utterly well-intended, the words at least trivialize and minimalize what the person is going through. So I do everything that I can to eliminate those two words altogether from anything that I say. It, at least statements should just kind of drop off of your, your vernacular altogether. Um, don't mention God. Don't mention God. When people are suffering tremendous losses, it's quite common to be angry with God. And even though, again, you may have the most well-intended sentiments, um, they may be very angry with God. And the last thing that they want to hear right now is that it was God's plan. Mm -hmm. Or to combine two of these worst sentiments, at least they're with God. Right? Uh, So... Another, that's another one that we typically can fall into the trap of rather easily. So what you're saying in some ways is our desire is to offer comfort, but yeah. there isn't any comfort other than just listening. Yes. Listening is probably the most comforting thing that we can do because it shows that you've taken a vested interest in someone long enough to stop talking. <laughs> right, and, and as leaders, we 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 do a lot of talking. So, as people, uh, we do a lot of talking too. That's okay. right. That's right. right. So, so, just to to take that time to just really listen to somebody is is probably the most nurturing thing that you can do. Okay, and not try to fix it, and not try to have the solution. Right, and other than a specific thing, can I help you with this concrete thing? Would you appreciate right. this? Okay, yes, fair Absolutely. enough. Now, I have to ask you. I seem to somehow get people telling me about a significant loss on email. I had one just this week, where you know somebody I've worked with for years is saying, "I can't make this because I just lost my father." There's no way that I'm going to see that person. How do I respond to this email? You pick up the phone. <laughs> you pick up the phone and you call. If you can't be with them face-to-face, um, if they're in the same building as you and you can walk down the hall or go up to the fourth floor and go see that person, go see them, right? If they are across the country or in a separate office or something like that, call them. And if they are absolutely unreachable, then you have to find a way to put it into words to respond to that email, but it has to be responded to. Yeah, But the human voice, I, I would say, is probably the most important aspect there. You have to talk to them one-on-one. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Note taken. I will go correct that then <laughs> accordingly. <laughs> okay. You have literally three and a half minutes. Okay. What if I'm the person that's experiencing grief? 
what should I be doing? As you're speaking as though uh, the leader, what if the yes. leader is the person experiencing grief? Well, or anybody in the organization. I'm the one that's now had grief. What do I go back to my organization and say or do? Aha. Okay. So um, admit your vulnerability. Let people know that it's okay for you to have a moment of weakness. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to communicate that you are not at 100% right now and that you need some help working through this. And I think especially if the leader is the person who is grieving, that is one of the most critical things that they can do is express their vulnerability. And that, again, just it sends a statement to the rest of the team that this is a safe place for us to talk about these things. And even I, who am supposed to be 100% on top of this game and responsible for everything, I can even express to you my weaknesses and I can come to you as a team when I need help picking up the slack so that it doesn't all fall apart on all of us. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is everything in a nutshell. I could not think of a more important um, uh, uh, expression to use than, than your vulnerability. Admit your vulnerability. So a couple of years ago, and granted, we only have two minutes in this one. A couple of years ago, I had a coaching client whose mother had been diagnosed with cancer, was second round on diagnosis, so pretty significant, you know, lots of trauma associated with this. This person would not tell her boss that this is going on mm. because of the fear of vulnerability. Obviously, she got coached to do the opposite because how on earth can the boss help without, I mean, just like you can't do that. So why should we not be afraid of vulnerability from your point of view? (laughs) Um, Because it's, it is, again, it's, it's an inherent part of our human nature to have those moments of weakness. I think if we don't identify them together, that it leads to further alienation and repression of our feelings and nothing good can come from those scenarios. There will be no growth uh, emotionally. There will be no progress professionally. And there may be outright liability that you're creating uh, through not having those honest conversations. Okay. I don't think anybody could say it any stronger than that one. And certainly I'm a believer that the most powerful leaders and the most powerful team members for that are the ones that can balance the vulnerability and the confidence as in I'm having a tough time. I need your help right now and I'm sure we will get over it and move on or some, some other thing, not feeling like you're suddenly going to get fired because you've got this weak moment. Absolutely. Okay. And I think the other watchword of the day is courage. Uh, indeed. Courage. Uh, probably the most, um, the most important attribute that a leader can have is the courage and bravery to tackle the difficult topics and the difficult conversations. And we're going to teach you how to do that. Fabulous. All right. My guest today, Guy Casablanca, as you've heard, he's a licensed funeral director and mortician. More importantly, he's the co-author of The Dying Art of Leadership, How Leaders Can Help Grieving Employees Excel at Work. And you can find out more about how they train leaders in corporations around the world at griefleaders.com. Guy, I think what still sticks with me is that at a minimum, one in 20 employees are experiencing a major traumatic event that's affecting their ability to concentrate, 
their mood, the way they show up, the errors they make at a minimum, and it's probably much higher than that. And the way you treat those individuals affects how the rest of the organization, the rest of the team is going to feel that they're respected, valued, humanized, vulnerable, safe. I mean, all the attributes that you want to attribute to your team are in that moment of how you treat somebody in grief. So Guy, thank you for being a guest. What a delightful conversation in spite of the topic. Thank you, Wanda. Like I said, I I was excited to be here and it has been a genuine pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And if you'd like to know more about how to handle some of these, join us on our brand new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.